Okay, if you got your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is a letter to the heart. The book of Ephesians is not a lecture. Friends, the book of Ephesians is not a list of things that you must do to get God to like you. The book of Ephesians is the letter that was written by the Apostle Paul with every ounce of pastoral passion in his being to a church, to a group of churches, actually, that didn't have any major issues. In other words, Ephesians is actually the only Pauline epistle that Paul wrote that wasn't spurred on by some controversy. And so therefore... Paul comes to us and says, what is the picture of the church to look like? This is it. And he says in chapters 1 to 3, this is what you should believe about what Jesus has done for you. And 4 to 6, about how therefore we are to live. So please give your attention to Stephanie. And let's stand together, if you're willing and able, to read from Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, would you take our hearts... And would you remind us, would you change us, would you show us the beauty of the good news of Jesus' coming? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians is a letter to the heart. What can be said of the book of Ephesians has been said, for example, of many great men in the history of the church, like Jonathan Edwards, when it was said that All of his theology was application. And everything he talked about by way of application was also theology. What I mean by that is that in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul prays this incredible prayer that they may know the hope, that they may know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And he says that that is evident in your life and in mine in two primary ways. The first is that you're changed personally. That the penny drops that you believe the gospel for yourself, that you're changed by what Jesus has done for you. But it doesn't just stay personal. The second manifestation, church, hear me, is that you together are made in his image. And he says the first, in the first half of chapter 2, that you're changed personally, and he says that you're changed corporately in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. I was talking with a guy named Joel this week in town, and we were talking about, you know, uh, the culture of Owasso, and and he found out that I was a minister, and that inevitably inevitably leads to discussions about how many churches there are in town. And I said to Joel, I said, Joel, um, why do you go to church? And he said, because it inspires me. It inspires me. I love the music, and I like the preaching, and it makes me feel good, and... um, He says, it inspires me and it makes me feel better. That's exactly what he said. And I I said, um, I love Big 12 football. 
And when I go to an OU game or I go to a Cowboys game or, heaven forbid, the New Jerusalem and I get to go to College Station and go to a, a game in Aggieland, and thank you very much, and I experience this incredible sense of inspiration. Can I skip Sundays to do that every week? Like, what's the difference, Joel, between going to church where you feel inspired, right, and going to watch a football game? The truth is that in a town like Owasso, and some of us have lived in this town for so long, we don't really know it. The cultural force of the cultural pressure to conform in this town is extremely powerful. And people know it who don't quite fit the mold of the typical Owasoan, which the typical Owasoan is changing as the city grows. But the force, the power to go to church is incredibly strong, isn't it? There's a church literally, almost literally on every corner of the town. I was talking to somebody who works this week for the city, a very powerful person in the city. And um, they were being interviewed for a job. And before they could take the job in Owasso, before they were actually offered the job, they had to meet with a very prominent person in the city. And they met with them. And after the conversation, you know, they talked about the job and what was required of them and made sure that she fit the bill. And, and he was walking her down toward her car. And he said, now, what church do you go to? And she said, St. Henry's. And he goes, oh, I knew it. I just couldn't place it. It's a very, very interesting comment to make to somebody about to take a job in the city, isn't it? Because the assumption is, number one, that she goes to church. And the assumption, number two, is that she's a Protestant. And the implicit language of being Protestant means that there are certain, um, there's certain body language, certain language that you use, certain mannerisms that kind of give away where you actually go to church. And so this kind of person goes to this church, and this kind of person goes to that church. The point is that the force, the power of the force culturally in this city to go to church is unbelievably strong. And so the question is, is the church just the social lubricant of a city like Owasso? Is it just what you do here, or is there more to it? And if there's more to it, what's to it? That's the question that Paul answers in this passage. He shows us in verse 21 that Stephanie just read, the blueprint, if you will, of what the church is. He gives us the definition of the church. And then he makes it personal, and he says, okay, now for Trinity, what does it mean for you? So the blueprint and the construction zone. Those are the two things that Paul gives us in verse 21, the blueprint, and verse 22, the construction zone, how we're being built in to what the church is. Now stay with me. This is extremely important for us to hear as a church plant. Are you with me? The blueprint. Everybody craves some kind of new society. Everybody craves a new vision. We had President Roosevelt's New Deal, from 1933 to 1945. We had JFK's New Frontier in 62 to 63. Some of you may remember that. We had LBJ's Great Society. Many of you remember that. We have all these aspirations for how politically we're going to become the new society, the hope of the world. We have that not just politically, but you also had that economically. There was a man many years ago 
whose name was Karl Marx. Karl Marx was a man who believed very strongly in this idea of new man or new society. And millions of people caught his vision, and they dedicated their life to his vision for political life. Marx saw that the human problem was almost exclusively an economic problem. If we can just pool our resources, we can eliminate poverty. We can eliminate the problems that plague modern civilization. And we can have, after the revolution, a classless society in which the new man would emerge in all of his economic liberation. Paul presents for us in this passage something greater still. Something greater than politics and something greater than economics. Because Paul argues that the human predicament is deeper than the just injustice and the economic structures of our life that just prohibit us from having a classless society. That the problem that we have as people actually goes much deeper than our circumstances. Right to the center of the human heart. Three times the Apostle Paul uses the same language as Karl Marx, new creation, but he means something utterly different. In fact, Karl Marx got his language, ironically, from the Bible. Paul says, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Or, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation. For the Apostle Paul, God is reconciling people that are very different from one another to himself. And he's doing it by creating the new society, and it's called the church. And in this context, you remember from several weeks ago when we were in the passage That Paul is taking Jew and Gentile and he is saying to them, brothers, despite your differences, despite how badly you actually hate one another. Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and he has now made us one in him. So that any two people, no matter how different they are, are now able to get along because the cross of Jesus levels the playing field. There is no room to boast because what did you bring to salvation? You brought nothing to the table. And Jesus brought everything for you. So therefore, it's okay and right and good to love people that are so different than you are that you would never hang out with anywhere else. And so the church, therefore, should be the one place in the world where no matter who you are, you're able to get along. And it's here that we began to show forth the vision that God has for a new society altogether. And the church, yes, the church will make you a better person, but not directly. Because you have to go through the joy of repentance and seeing that Jesus Christ is the power. It is what he has done for you that allows you then to love other people as we are called to love. The difference between a gospel-based society and an economic or a political one is just that, good news. It's the gospel power. To be a Christian means to be welcomed into a community. Because God himself 
listen, we're not Muslim, we're not Hindu, and we're not Buddhist. We are Christians, which means we worship one God in three persons. God himself is community. And he invites us into that community and he gives us the opportunity now to begin to experience that joy. And you cannot ignore the importance of community in our life. But in this town, so many people do. We have to go to church because there's this very powerful force that compels us to go culturally. But oh friends, listen. If you go to church to become a better person, you will experience spiritual decay faster than you can identify it. And you'll be frustrated to no end. Paul shows us in this passage that there are three things about being God's new community. He shows us that the church is that in whom the whole structure, a structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Now, what does verse 21 mean? It means that you are a temple. (laughs) And if you're like me, when you think of the word temple, you think of like, you know, the new iPad game, Temple Runner. Or you think of Indiana Jones, if you're a little older, and the Temple of Doom. When you hear the word temple, you think about like people with like, you know, headdresses and, you know, child sacrifices and in the caves of South America somewhere, right? The temple in Scripture was the place of God's power and His presence. The temple was the place where God was present. 2 Chronicles 7.1 describes the temple as the place that God's glory filled. Psalm 11 says that the Lord is in His holy temple. And isn't it interesting, at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 21.22, it says, No longer shall there be any temple. Because God is no longer seen in the visible collection of his people. Because in the New Jerusalem, it's all the elect and God's glory fills the New Jerusalem. There is no more need for a temple. But now, in Owasso in 2013, we're called to be a temple. And he says that there are three characteristics of it. It's holy, it grows, and it's corporate. It's holy, It grows and it's corporate. And I just went for a couple of minutes to look at each of these. First, it's holy. The word holy doesn't mean perfect. It means set apart. It means perfect in God's case, but that's the only case in which it actually means perfect. It means to be set apart. In the Old Testament, God set apart for himself a people. And he gave these people promises Promises of his covenant faithfulness to them, no matter what they went through in life. He gave them not just promises, but he gave them signs of those promises in the circumcision of the young boys in Israel. He gave them physical reminders of his love for them. And not only did he give them signs, but he also gave them covenant blessings or curses in light of his authority over their life. In other words, if you live according to what I've called you to be, you'll experience my blessing. Or if you choose to not live according to what I've called you to be, you'll experience my covenant curses. And you see all that all through Scripture. Isaac received the covenant blessings. Achan received the covenant cursing, for example. And in the New Testament, you see the exact same pattern. 
you see that God has set apart a people for himself through the preaching of the word, his promises that come to us through hearing the Bible explained to us. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Acts chapter 6, the disciples are called to be ministers of the word. In Colossians 3.16, let the word of God dwell richly in you. In 2 Timothy 4.12, preach the word in season and out. These are God's covenant promises. And they're his promises of what has happened in history. That is that Christ came and he lived a real life as a real human being and he died our death on the cross. It's personal and that he didn't just die for some generic sense of humanity, but he died for you and for you. And he died for you. And he knew you when he was at the cross. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider? That Jesus Christ knew you when he was dying and he said, it is finished. The gospel is deeply personal. It's not just historical. It's personal, but it's also what gives us hope. It's, it's eventual, if you will. It gives us hope for what's to come. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Paul says in Philippians, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal toward which Christ has called me heavenward. The word that God gives us is the preaching of the gospel, and it is historical, it's personal, and it's eventual. It's very real. It is analogous to the covenant promises that God gave us in the Old Testament. He also gives us today signs of his promises. We just saw one of them in baptism just a moment ago. Go and baptize, Jesus says in Matthew 28. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I delivered unto you that which I also received, and he tells us about the Lord's Supper. And we're commanded to do that until Christ comes again. We do one of these every week at Trinity. Because in a world of spin and the over-marketization of every area of our life, God wants us to be grounded in real realities, historical realities that happened. And he reminds us of those realities through tangible signs and seals, bread and wine. And water. And he reminds us that he's not a God who stands off, but he's a God who draws near to us. They are the physical reminders of the mystery of being brought in to union with Christ. And then I'm talking now about how God's people are set apart. They're holy, right? They're holy because they hear the word, they're holy because they receive the sacraments. And do you know how else the church is holy? A true church of God is holy because it experiences the discipline of the Lord under the leadership of the church. It experiences the covenant blessings and the curses that God has given to us. In Matthew 18, in fact, I had a guy call me two weeks ago and he asked me on the phone, are you a church that practices Matthew 18? Because nobody does it. Matthew 18 is where we read in Scripture that if you have a fault against a brother, right? You 
go to that brother and you say, brother, let's reconcile. And if he rejects you, then you bring two or three witnesses. And then if he rejects them, then you bring it to the church. And if he still refuses to repent, then you put him out of your fellowship. It's a very painful thing. But it's always done for the restoration of that brother. It's never punishment. It's always because you love him enough to speak the truth in his life and call him back in. You see this in Galatians. If a brother is taken down by a sin, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. And you see it in Hebrews 10, right? The point is, you see this nature of discipline all throughout Scripture. And people call, this guy called me on the phone and asked me if we're a church that practices church discipline because no one does it today. Do you know what I mean? You go to church because it's the cultural force of Owasso. But as soon as you go to a church that begins to step on your toes, that begins to actually call you out on your sin, boom, man, I'm going down the street to another church. I can pick whichever one I want, and it's great. We have no sense of commitment because we are, we're Americans. That's not an insult. That's just a fact. We're Americans. And God, guns, and religion, those are the important things for us. And if you mess with any of those, we're going to be offended. But Paul says, if you're going to be set apart, if you're going to be holy, then you have to submit to the leadership of the church. Because how does God show, get his arms around you? How does he show you how much he loves you? It is through the exhortation of brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why, by the way, the most hateful thing you can do towards somebody is see them clearly walk outside of the bounds of what God has called us to do and just say, huh, that's their problem. I'm good with God. Oh, he's addicted to pornography? Oh, yeah, you know, that's messy. I don't want to get involved with that. I don't want to challenge him on that. And we have this mistaken notion that when we call people out on sin, that we're like judging them. Friends, when you have that mindset, it's because you feel like you are doing things to get God's approval. You yourself often feel that way. But when you lovingly, that's the operative word here, lovingly restore a brother and you say, hey man, you know what? I love you. But I just want you to know, bro, that, that I'm seeing something in your life and I love you enough to bring it up. Like, the way you talk to your wife, like, that's not normal. That's not okay. And I don't know what's going on in your marriage, but I want you to know that I'm here for you and I love you. But most of us think that that's too emotionally taxing. And we think that because we are so ruggedly individualistic in ourselves that we really don't know what it means to love in community very well. Listen to me very carefully. Holiness demands struggle. And things that don't struggle in life are dead. At this church, the elders of the church assume that you struggle. And we do not care if you struggle with sin 
We just care when you stop struggling over us. We want you to fight sin, and we want you to be in the midst of the battle, and we expect you to be in the midst of the battle. But the moment you lay down your sword and you just say, I give up, that is when you need the most help because that's where spiritual decay has already begun. And that's my calling. And the elders of this church one day are going to stand before King Jesus and we are going to be judged twice as hard about how well we shepherded you. Do you know that? And so, oh, friends, we plead with you and we write letters and we weep in session meetings, praying for repentance among you. We don't do that because we have it all figured out. We do that because we love you. And that is the mark of a church that's holy and set apart for him. And if you go to a church that stops practicing church discipline, you no longer go to a church that is the Lord's. But it's so hard to do it because you don't want to offend people because you're afraid they'll leave your church. Listen, the day the elders of this church care more about people showing up at this church than they do about shepherding the hearts of people in this church is the day when Satan has already owned this place. When you ask people, why do you go to church? Well, it's because they often will say, because that's how we please God. That's how he likes us. It keeps our kids from screwing up. And implicit in that theology is the idea that you actually please God by what you do. Can I just be deadly frank with you? God loves you too much to let your sin stand in the way of his love for you. But he loves you too much to let you wallow in your self-pity. And so some of you who have stopped fighting sin, get off the pity wagon now and see that God loves you too much to let you remain the way you are. He loves you enough to take you just as you are, but he loves you too much to let you remain as you are. Do you hear me? Does that make sense? If you miss all that Paul says in chapter 1, that Jesus has come for us, that he has elected us for before the dawn of time, you're going to experience an endless cycle of frustration and spiritual highs and lows your entire life. But if you begin to realize that God loves you, that he's bringing you into a covenant family that really loves you, that knows you, and yes, you're going to be let down and you're going to be hurt along the way. It's almost inevitable. But this is how he is showing you what it means to be human by bringing you toward people, not away from them, to help them know you and for you to know them. Listen, are you addicted to alcohol? You need to get help today are you addicted to food you need help now men are you addicted to porn women are you addicted to porn on the internet you need help now but getting sober and getting a control of your food habits and getting off looking at pornography on the internet never made a person a christian But it's what's expected of us because God has called us to be his. Does that make sense? If you clean yourself up because you think Jesus wants you to be clean when you come before him, you will never experience grace. 
You come to him as you are, and Jesus cleans you up. And it's so beautiful. You don't need to get clean. You need him. And when you get him, you'll become clean eventually. We are set apart. We are a holy temple of the Lord's. But the temple isn't just holy. Secondly, it grows. My old seminary professor, John Hanna, used to say that the church grows and individuals grow the same way that a five-year-old grows into his daddy's clothes. It's slow and it's over time. Sometimes, you know, you have these kids that, you know, when they get 13 or 14, you look at them, and then the next time you see them, it's like, bam, they've grown three inches. And it's like, man, are you taking creatine or what? Because he's filled out, he's big, and he fits his daddy's clothes all of a sudden. Sometimes that happens to us. When you become a Christian, man, it's beautiful. You change so radically. But as you begin to grow in Christ, that growth is often very, very slow. It's like looking at a clock. If you stare at the clock and you go, okay, I'm reading my Bible. I want to grow in Jesus. And you just see the minute hand just sit there. It's not working. But if you go live your life and you come back half an hour, two hours, five hours later, and you look and go, oh my gosh. Not only has the minute hand moved, but the hour hand has moved. This is amazing. You grow. And the reason you grow like that is because Jesus' kingdom is already but not yet. That is that Jesus' rule and reign right now is here and powerful in our life, but not completely until he returns. And so, yes, the church is going to break your heart because it's full of broken human beings. And yes, you're going to be disappointed. And yes, you're going to sin against your brother. The kingdom is here. You've been set apart, but you're not yet fully sanctified until Christ returns. Amen? Amen. Man, this is such good news for us. John Owen describes it like this. He says that when you become a Christian, it's like your soul is a densely wooded forest. Stay with me. This is helpful. And he clears out a huge swath of this forest. And then you're left with bushes and redwoods and weeds that you're to pick and to chop on all the rest of the days of your life. And some of these redwoods, ladies, some of these redwood sins in your life you've struggled with since you were a little girl. And men, some of these things you have dealt with since you were a little boy, and you know what they are. And you chop at the redwood, and you've got to take a break or you'll wear yourself out. And you need the church to come around you and tell you off and say, brother, let's, let's let Jesus help us out and let's look to him and let's rely on him and let's go pick some weeds together. Let's go deal with some little bushes and we'll come back to the redwood in a little while. It grows. And the gospel one day will make all things new. And those little peccadillos, those little pet sins, those little things that you've had that you've struggled with all your life that have become big sins, pride, greed, lust, whatever it might be, insecurity. Listen, there is hope. But not letting the church in to help you, not letting God's people in to help you with that is like inheriting a billion dollars and not taking it. Yeah, that's okay. 
I'll just live on the food stamps. That's what it's like when you live individualistically in the Christian life. Because it's not only holy, it not only grows, but it's also corporate. Listen, we love autonomy as Americans, and it's a corporate growth. It says you grow together. You grow together. And can I just be real frank with you? I have blind spots. I have spots in my life Sins in my life, areas of my life that I don't know about. That's why they call them blind spots, right? And if you ever gone to Dillard's or JCPenney's and you go into the three-way mirror, you know, like let a five-year-old loose and just watch and he'll find that three-way mirror, I promise. Give him 10 minutes. It's like a kid magnet. And you go stand on the platform in front of the three-way mirror and those are so cool to look at, aren't they? Why? Because... You can see on this three-way mirror every aspect of your body physically. You can see your side. You can see your back. It's like, man, this is cool. I'm growing a little bit here. I didn't expect that. And I'll look at myself from that perspective. And is that how people really see me? That's interesting. You like these three-way mirrors. You see yourself physically. Do you know that there's no such thing as a three-way mirror? There's no such thing as an instrument like that in the Christian life to see your heart except one thing. The community of God's people. The covenant community becomes for us that internal three-way mirror by which we are able to see ourselves, to learn about our personalities, to learn about our tendencies because people are helping us see ourselves as we are and not as we dream ourselves to be. And the good news for me is that I've got brothers I've invited into my life that are going to help me struggle. And they're going to say, yo, Blake, I'm telling you what, there's areas of your life that you just totally ignore because you're, you're doing this, and, it, and it's so freeing when somebody loves me enough to help me see that. It's wonderful when you begin to see yourself in a totally different way. Every one of us has blind spots. And therefore, every one of us needs people that are through a mirrors for us. The holy temple of God is just that. It's holy, it grows, it grows together, and then not only does Paul give us this kind of blueprint for the church, but with this I'm going to close, he also shows us the construction zone, if you will, in verse 22. He shows us the construction zone because he says God's church is the presence of God's kingdom on earth, and it's made visible through his holy people growing together into his image for the sake of the world. That's what the church is. God's church is not a place that you go because you want to feel better about yourself, although that might happen. It's not a place you go to babysit your children. It is the visible manifestation of God's power and presence in the world today through his people who are being made holy as they grow together. In fact, God's church is so important that he pushes back tradition for the sake of the unity of his church. In Second Chronicles 30, right? this is way back in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the, the, the kings before Hezekiah didn't keep the Passover. They, let, he, they dropped the ball. And King Hezekiah was going to try to reinstitute the Passover, this great banquet of God's people. And he says, God, should I, should I go ahead and celebrate the Passover now when it's supposed to be on the right date of the church calendar? 
or should I wait until I can get all the tribes together? And God says, no, the unity of my people is so important. I want you to push the Passover back two whole months so that everybody can be together because they need each other. And so Hezekiah pushed Passover back two months so that all of God's people together could join together and celebrate God's covenant renewal together. And we're called to be a young church plant in this town. And we are a construction zone. We, we've got our hard hats on as we set up. We've got our hard hats on as we love each other well. We've got our hard hats on as we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to do and be. And listen. At the first of the year, I painted a picture for us of what the church is. And I just want to remind you again of what that is. We are a church that wants to see grace change everything in Owasso, bringing spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to our city. Our mission is to enjoy the triune God by showing that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. And we want to do three things well. Worship, community, and kingdom. That means we need to pray bold prayers together. That means we need to tell our stories of rescue to each other. That means we need to appeal to believers and to non-believers. And we expect non-believers to be with us here we want to know and love god's word we want to worship and weep together we want to enjoy god together we want to love awaso and the world together i'm going to send all of these to you on the city this week with explanations so you can read them and re up your sense of longing to be part of a church like this and we want to embrace risk trinity was born in risk and we move forward in risk and we seek to embrace risk in all the aspects of our church vision. And our community is going to be messy. It's the sign of a healthy community. It's going to be messy. And the question is, when you get hurt by somebody because they said something that was harmful to you, how do you respond? Do you respond in grace? If they're being honest about a sin, do you take it humbly? Or do you just say, get off my back, man. I'm going to go down the street to another church. Older women. When you were younger, you dreamed about the day you'd be this age. And here you are. Are you investing into the lives of younger women in your church? You thought, when I get older, then I'll invest in the... You're here. And older women, we need you so badly. Older men. Your life may not have been as you expected it when you were this age, but here you are. What are you called to do? One of the things you're called to do is to invest your life into younger men. Are you doing that? When's the last time you took somebody from this church to lunch just because? You don't want to talk about setup. You don't talk about church. You just wanted to, just tell me your story. And how can I pray for you? That'll change a church. And you know why you can do that? Younger men, when's the last time you sat with an older man and just listened to his wisdom? 
you gleaned insight from him, that you humbly confessed that you do not know everything and you'll learn from another man. Are you humble? If you've been coming to this church for a long time and you haven't joined the church, you haven't joined any church, this is going to sound really bold, but I'm just going to say it because I think it's biblical. If you're sitting on the fence because you're afraid to commit to a church, you're walking in sin. Commit to the church. If you're not plugged into a community group, it's not sinful that you're not in a community group, but it is like saying you have a million dollars and you're living off food stamps. Get into community. It's not going to be comfortable. You may not find the right one the first time you go. Go to another one. But find a community for you. This is how God nourishes us and he changes us and he makes us into his dwelling place. But you're like, you know what? Acceptance in all these groups is conditional and I don't know if I'm going to, you know what? God's love is conditional. It is conditional. But you know who paid every one of those conditions for you? Your Savior. And do you know who gave up his community so that you might experience true community? Jesus Christ, who left the holy community of the Father and the Spirit to come into our broken community to show you with every ounce of his being what it's like to be part of God's new society. Because he gave up his perfect community so that he might form in us, in you and me, one new community in him. Doesn't that create in you a kind of yearning to be that kind of church in this city? Oh, friends, there are so many people who need to be here. These chairs are empty because you have neighbors and friends that need to be here. Let's let them experience the joy of the gospel of grace. That Christ has set us apart as his holy people. We grow together. And Christ has set us apart to grow together as his holy new temple. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest doubts, droughts, and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled and striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ we stand. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it again. And he was talking about his body. And he has invited us into his body. For we are, as a preparation for worship read earlier, members one of another. Let's do that together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it is so hard for us to be the church because we have a thousand reasons to not like her. But would you, O Holy Spirit, draw us in to see the beauty of community. Father, would you help us to experience a place where we can be known and where we can learn to know others. Oh, Lord, we pray that you'll help us as a church to be the beginning of a radical movement of churches across the Tulsa metro area. Because we're not about building a huge church. We're about being the church together, a people on the move a move for your glory's sake. 
So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.